Objection to the Rule, your Sunday morning news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. My name is Teresa Robinson. I'm on air today with my co-host, Emily Scott. How's it going, lady? Hello. I am doing pretty well. How are you doing? I can't complain. It's Friday. It's not raining. Mm-hmm. It's you know? true. It's true. It's been warmer the last couple of days. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, like yeah. Indian summer came late this year. Mm-hmm. It's true. I just hope the temperature doesn't drop before Halloween because I have a really dope Halloween costume. Oh my gosh, what are you going to be? I'm going to be a robot. That's a great costume. I, <laughs> I know. That. You know, art imitates life. So I'm just- I know. The robots are taking over. Um, yeah, I don't have a costume yeah. planned at all. Just Halloween and like, so I've just been watching scary movies all month and like yeah. eating lots of candy. So like, <laughs> I don't really have like any specific plans for Halloween because this year is just, you know, it yeah. is what it is. Well, we're yeah. actually having a um, Halloween party, my building in our backyard. So Aww, there's been talks of, you know, uh, pumpkin carving and uh, yeah, just really fun stuff. So I decided fun. to take it to the next level and you know it's like you know what what does 2020 mean i'm a robot <laughs> hey i love that yeah. um yeah my friend one of my friends and i we had been talking last hollow like last november we were like oh man this we should do this next year but we were going to be like michigan j frog and like oh, wow. the the sad man that like finds him in a box right <laughs> you know that cartoon yeah i've seen that before but like i know but we won't have the chance maybe in a maybe next year or something but that would have been a fun costume awesome well if you're interested yeah. let me know yeah we're allowed to bring a certain number of guests so oh, fun all right so this week uh we'll be talking about the purdue pharma settlement an update on the wall of lies with radio free brooklyn Um, some good news from the SNAP-Ed program and much more. And we're going to kick it off with our update from the Wall of Lies. Emily, you got got Mm. that for us? I do, yes. So uh, I think we talked about it on the show, but we've definitely, we talked about the Wall of Lies. And yes, then I think I mentioned an update, I think maybe two weeks ago, maybe last week even. Time is, what is time? Exactly. But um, yeah, it was up in Bushwick and then it got vandalized by pro-Trump, like Proud Boys, bullshit um and there was a fundraiser to help raise money and find a new location for it and we found a new location for it which is very exciting and there's also a dedicated website to for the wall of lies now um so the website is radiofreebrooklyn.org slash wall of lies very simple um it's on the northwest corner of lafayette and grand streets in manhattan um the new wall is twice as big 100 feet by 10 feet tall Wow. Which is pretty great. Um, And yeah, just as a recap, it's a public art exhibit displaying all 20,000 plus false statements made by our commander in chief while in office. Um, It's a groundbreaking visual art project demonstrating the unprecedented lack of honesty from Trump. Um, But yeah, go check it out. Um, By the time this airs on Sunday, the 25th, because we're recording on Friday, the 23rd. so that day in between recording and airing, there yeah. was an event by the time we're taking place. <laughs> it was a live event, but we still, um, you should definitely check it out. It's very cool. All right. Oh, yeah. Cool. Thank you cool. for that update. And so yeah. this week we are missing our third party, Jasmine. Yeah. She couldn't pre she couldn't be with us today to record, but she did pre-record her story. And we're going to let her finish our local news segment. Take it away, Jasmine. Hello everyone, happy Sunday. 
This is Jasmine. Um, I'm pre-recording this segment on Saturday, October 24th. Um, You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And today I'm going to be talking about a local story. And this reporting was done by Brigitte Bergen for The Gothamist. And the title of the article that I got this from is De Blasio Plans Election Observer Corps without any volunteers trained or recruited yet. So this came out yesterday, uh, or yesterday from when I'm recording this, uh, Friday, October 23rd, and an early voting begins in New York City um, today when I'm recording this, October 24th. And de Blasio said on Friday that he planned to recruit hundreds of city workers in a matter of days to join something called an election observer corps. So this is a group that would be assigned to stand outside poll sites across the city on election day, November 3rd, to make sure that election, that voters don't face any intimidation at the polls. So according to the mayor, he's launching this program in in response to rhetoric coming from the current president and from his campaign that he believes would lead to voter suppression if there aren't enough people watching on the ground. He says, and you know, for the record, I don't agree with this statement. This year, for the first time in a long time, we have to be worried about systematic efforts to suppress the vote in communities of color and immigrant communities, purposeful efforts and intimidation. Look, the president has made very clear he is intending to try to defy the will of the people, de Blasio said. So while I do agree with him that there's a great potential for violence, this election that we haven't seen before, there's always been massive efforts at voter uh, suppression throughout the country. It might not have always been in the form of people showing up potentially with weapons or to um, physically bully people. But even all of these videos that we've seen floating around of people waiting in super long lines to vote, um, voting locations being gotten rid of in certain states, like all of that is a form of voter suppression and it's quite effective. Okay, but I digress. Uh, The article goes on to say that while the program may be aimed at protecting people's civil rights, The hasty announcement came with scant details about who the volunteers would be, where they would work, how they would be identified, when they would be trained, and what they would do, and why the city was opting to mobilize its own resources when several experienced organizations already do this work. So this segment of the story reminded me very much of how the mayor has dropped the ball with dealing with the pandemic. Um, we see that contact tracing was a very similar thing where there have been organizations that have, like the health department has been working in New York City for many, many, many years effectively, and they already have the knowledge and the protocols and everything for how to do contact tracing and other processes that one would need in an epidemic. And the mayor deciding to do like these last minute changes and cut experienced people out to try to do his own thing or create like reinvent the wheel has, in my opinion, and in a lot of other people's opinions, cost 
many, many, many New Yorkers' lives and their health. So, you know, this isn't quite the same as a disease, but this last-minute slapdash, let's redo something that's already being done instead of supporting who's already doing it, sounded very familiar to me. Um, on Thursday, before the mayor made this announcement, Jumani Williams, who's the public advocate, joined the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, and Susan Lerner, who is the head of the good government group Common Cause New York, to unveil a separate program that, that it consists of about 600 volunteers across the state, and they've already been assigned to monitor poll sites, sites starting Saturday, the first day of early voting. This year, they also introduced roving bike monitors who can move around from one site to another. So Lerner goes on to say, we have a command center and captain structure so that our volunteers are well supported and are able to identify and escalate problems to the command team. She also said that the poll watcher program was already affiliated with the National Nonpartisan Election Protection Program that reports problems at poll sites to a hotline whose number is 1-866-OUR-VOTE, and it's staffed by election lawyers affiliated with the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. So Lerner learned about um, de Blasio's plan on Thursday, and she made the point that Common Cause New York has been recruiting volunteers for months and has been training them for weeks in 90-minute sessions that go over New York election law. And they provide more detailed information about how volunteers can report problems to the command center. And all of these watchers in this program will be wearing masks that say election protection. On the other hand, this new plan that the city is going to be working on, a lot of the details still need to be worked out. The person that's going to be overseeing the program is named Laura Wood. She's the senior advisor and general counsel to the Mayor's Democracy NYC office, which launched in 2018 and is currently operating without a director. Wood said that the city was in the process still of recruiting volunteers with an email that was supposed to go out yesterday on Friday to city employees notifying them of this opportunity. The office would also be asking staff in the mayor's office of community affairs, the law department and the census office to participate, but they couldn't provide any specifics outside of a goal of recruiting people in the next four to five days. And there's a training session set for later next week. So Wood told the Gothamist that you know, she knows that there are community groups and others that have worked on these efforts for years and we'll do everything we can to partner and coordinate with them and really try to stand together, united as a city to protect voters. So I, while I do understand um, the mayor deciding to, you know, take the president's rhetoric seriously and to try to do something. I do want to add that it's, it's very disappointing that something like this would be announced a day, literally a day before early voting is already set to happen and they still don't sound like they have a plan. 
like one thing that this pandemic has shown like not just in government but in my own personal life and my work life there's so many people that are in these positions of authority they're overseeing things and they are just completely incompetent and not up to the task like this is a situation where you already have nonpartisan individuals set up with organizations that have been in existence for years that the city could have been and should have been partnering with beefing up their numbers months ago. But now it's like at the last possible minute, you know, in order to be prepared for November 3rd, they're launching a completely separate program. And honestly, like I, I do feel like there's going to be bad actors and people with um, shitty intentions that lob onto this program where they see it as an opportunity to join something that looks legit, but they might be there to intimidate um, voters themselves. So I'm hoping for the best and I'm glad to see that there's already, you know, other people that are already trained. They've been getting trained for weeks at this point. And they're already going to be out to help people at the polls when early voting starts. But um, I'm definitely concerned about how voting is going to go, especially in this political climate. Um, so, yeah, like if you'd like to read more about this story, you can head over to Gothamist. Um, and again, the title is de Blasio Plans Election Observer Corps Without Any Volunteers Trained or Recruited Yet. So best of luck to those new volunteers and also to the ones that have been around already. Um, if you're someone who does participate in the electoral process, please have a voting plan. Um, be alert to anyone that might be there trying to spread misinformation um, in the article, they also list um, phone numbers that you can call if you feel like something is suspicious. So, yeah, please stay safe, New York City. And if you believe in voting, go out and vote. Uh, thanks for listening. And back to Teresa and Emily. Have a good Sunday and enjoy the rest of your week. Bye. So thank you so much for that story, Jasmine. Um, we didn't get to hear it beforehand, but I'm sure that it was uh, definitely good because Jasmine does a wonderful job at covering um, any news that she's up for this week. So we're going to go ahead and jump into our first music break. We have a nice mix of music for you today. The first track is a tribute to the importance of us voting right now during the season. Early voting has begun. It began on October 24th, and there has been record numbers of people going to the polls. So if you are in New York, please get started. If you're anywhere else in this world, please get started. Don't wait for the last minute. Uh, this track comes from Yellow Pain, and it features Seven Streeter. It's called My Vote Will Count. We'll be right back. Yellow! I know the world won't give me nothing, so I gotta take it. And I know it's a way we can win, why won't nobody say it? It don't matter where we're from, suburbs or the slums, they don't want to see us winning, they'd rather keep us down.
You know, back in middle school when they told us it was three branches of the government, we forgot it when we got older. It's the judicial, the legislative, and executive. But all we know is the executive. That's the mayor or the governor and the president. Now, none of them three people make no laws. They just be checking them. The laws come to their desk, and all they do is say no or yes to it. So when the news station tried to tell us that Barack Obama couldn't put us on, we was all Saudi at Obama when it was the Congress members out along. We got to focus on the legislative branch. Yeah, they the ones that make the laws. Yeah, they the ones right how much food stamp money you get on the car. But when people that wanted to help us, wanted the job, I know they probably lost. Because we ain't even know their name, we ain't know their face, we ain't know it all. So the Congress or the State House, that's legislative, they make laws. So what we want from the president is what they do, okay, y'all? See, they election every two years, but we don't never even go to those. The Congress, they can raise minimum wage, but we ain't even really know it, though. So you know how back in 08, when we all voted for Obama, we was all supposed to go back in 2010 and vote for the Congress. Because they the ones make child support laws. They the ones choose if your kids at school get the East steak or corn dogs. The State House make the courthouse. So if the country failed, then you can't say it's them. It's your fault, cause y'all ain't know to vote for Congress members that was for y'all. And they don't gotta leave after four years, and we just let them sit. See, they don't wanna tell you this, they want you to focus on the president. Now, the third branch is the judicial, that's judges. They the reason why John Crawford and Trey Vine had justice. So when Meek Mill got locked up just for popping willies, we blame the judge and not the city when they let her get voted in, cause they ain't know who to vote against. Imagine life on the other side. Roads better, schools better, everybody get their license back, grocery store food better, custody of your kids back, homeless people get new shelters, if we gon' fix the U.S., we gotta start with them two letters, me and you, somebody told us that the government wanna keep us broke, but the only reason why those people in the government is cause we ain't vote, and I ain't talking about the president, I'm talking about the ones we ain't know, see they was gonna try to keep it low, but it's gonna hurt them when they see the polls. I know the world won't give me nothing, so I gotta take it. And I know it's the way we can win, why won't nobody say it? It don't matter where we're from, suburbs or the slums, they don't want to see us winning, they'd rather keep us dumb. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Um, and now we have our national news segment. Emily, what's on the docket for today? All righty. So this story comes from an October 21st New York Times article by Jan Hoffman and Katie Benner titled uh, Purdue Pharma Pleads Guilty to Criminal Charges for op- Opioid Sales. Uh, so I relied on this article heavily. Lots of quotes. So thank you. Lots, New York Times. Um The article explains, quote, Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin, has agreed to plead guilty to criminal charges related to its marketing of the addictive painkiller and faces penalties of roughly $8.3 billion, the Justice Department announced on Wednesday. The settlement could could pave the way for a resolution of thousands of lawsuits brought against the company for its role in a public health crisis that has killed more than 450,000 Americans since 1999. OxyContin, which came on the market in the mid-90s, is seen as an early, ferocious driver of the opioid epidemic, and Purdue is regarded as the architect of muscular, misleading drug marketing. Um, and that was a, just that was a quote from the New York Times as well. Um, and also, OxyContin is the brand name of the drug oxycodone, for any listeners who aren't sure how those two things are related. Um, oxycodone is the generic name. 
Uh, quote, the company's owners, members of the wealthy Sackler family, have agreed to pay $225 million in civil penalties. Prosecutors said the agreement did not preclude the filing of criminal charges against Purdue executives or individual Sacklers. Um, and if the family paying hundreds of million dollars of their own money sounds like a good deal, uh, you, the listeners, should know that the Sacklers have an estimated net worth of, quote, at least $13 billion, with a B, dollars, much of it generated from sales of OxyContin. Um, and it's it's hard to sometimes when you see, when you hear the number like billions like i mentioned this i think la- last week or 2 weeks ago when we were talking about big tech and like what billions like really means yeah. so oh my god so someone who makes someone who makes $50,000 a year um according to this math i just did uh, yeah someone who makes $50,000 a year will have to work 260,000 years to make 13 billion dollars oh my god (laughs) yeah no it's like insane and like hearing numbers like that like you really like that that is what you need to know and 50,000 is like about I don't know what that where that is on average or not for an individual but um it's not it's not a little bit of money like that's a decent income for a single person um yeah it's crazy no one should be a billionaire (laughs) Um, Anyway, so back to the article itself. So from what I saw in the article, uh, what Purdue Pharma actually pled guilty to was, um, and these are all direct quotes, uh, defrauding federal health agencies, violating anti-kickback laws, marketing opioids to more than 100 doctors that it suspected of writing illegal prescriptions and lying about this to the Federal Drug Enforcement Administration, which is the DEA. Um, and civil penalties related to allegations that the company violated the False Claims Act by using aggressive marketing tactics to convince doctors to unnecessarily prescribe opioids, frivolous prescriptions that experts say helped fuel a drug addiction crisis that has ravaged America for decades. Quote, the penalties include $3.54 billion in criminal fines and $2 billion in criminal forfeiture of profits, the largest penalties ever levied against a pharmaceutical manufacturer. Uh, The violation of the False Claims Act came with an additional $2.8 billion in civil penalties. And Purdue also faces thousands of local lawsuits from states, cities, tribes, individuals, uh, which it refused to deal with until the federal charges were resolved. So to settle the local lawsuits, quote, Purdue has proposed a global settlement that it values at about $10 billion dollars. That figure includes future profits from drugs still in development, as well as a $3 billion contribution from the Sacklers. So while all of these like billion dollar figures and fines sound really big and like a great way, like when we're getting into the billions numbers, like to um, sort of fix things, rectify, start fixing things. um, The article explains that, quote, it is unlikely the company will pay anything close to the $8.3 billion negotiated in the settlement deal. That is because Purdue sought bankruptcy court protection amid the onslaught of lawsuits, and so the federal government will not have to will now have to take its place in a long line of creditors. Typically, creditors end up collecting pennies on the dollar in bankruptcy proceedings. Um, I'm not sure if that if those proceedings will also affect like the proposed local lawsuit agreements as well. Um, but that is what the article said about the federal claims. Um, So not everyone is happy with this settlement. Obviously, Um, the Sackler family itself, quote, has been seeking release from litigation as a condition of settling the Purdue claims, even though there are private civil claims against individual people as well. 
And quote, a forensic audit last year by Purdue found that the Sacklers directed at least $10.7 billion in the company's proceeds to family-controlled trusts and holding companies, even as Purdue was facing legal scrutiny, which is like pretty dirty. (laughs) Man. Yeah. And then um, a last quote from the article, uh, quote, a coalition of relatives of opioid victims wrote a letter to attorney and then wrote a letter to Attorney General William P. Barr that categorized the settlement um, as, quote, premature and too little, according to the Times. Um, So, yeah, so that's what's going on. With the opioid crisis and with Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family, which I don't know if you can get more evil than that. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts? My thoughts are, um, well, what there's no number that could be enough for the amount of people who have died and been affected by the opioid crisis in America. Um, It's so easy to do. Right. I mean, it's 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 like as we're speaking, it's still happening. So it's kind of awkward that this whole thing is being considered like a settlement. Like, what are you settling? Like, wouldn't settling be like not producing this massive amount of um, medicine that is, um, you know, getting people addicted and killing people by the day? I mean, I don't know if they'll ever be able to stop producing. I guess that would be kind of, you know astronomical in in regards to what we would expect but there's no money there's no money value that could um captivate the loss that we've all experienced from this monopoly of uh treachery if you will okay yeah so i think my main point of what i was trying to say is that you know there's no number that could be a settlement for the amount of lives affected by the opioid crisis and also um, it's currently still going on. There was something that stuck out from what you were saying about how some of the settlement is supposed to from, be from future drug sales. So it's very clear that the intention is not to make any uh, useful contributions to this battle, but to continue right. providing these drugs that are affecting our communities. Right. Yeah. So, right. The drugs are still being produced. So I didn't get into that too much because I thought, you know, there's, there's a lot of different angles of the story for sure. Um, but one part of what the question is, what happens next, right? So the company going into bankruptcy means that I don't really understand bankruptcy very well. Um, but my understanding is that like what happens is that they're, the company needs to change afterwards. Sometimes it gets liquidated. I don't really know, but essentially there needs to be a change to Purdue Pharma. And in the New York times article that says that, uh, they, the Purdue itself proposes that it becomes be run as a quote, public benefit corporation with proceeds from continuing limited sales of Oxycontin and several quote, uh, and several overdose reversing medications under development to go toward opioid abatement. that's all a quote from the times. And then the Justice Department likes that model, but um, which would mean that the the U.S. government is like involved into some degree in like um, the production the of these production. Drugs. Yeah. Yes. And a lot of and apparently like um, also in the article, it says like a bunch of state attorneys general um, r- address like attorney general William P. Barr saying that they don't like that idea at all. Like the government should not be in the opioid business essentially. And that they argued Purdue should still be private and run with government oversight. Um, yeah. So yeah. So 
at this yeah, point that's you a don't, huge thing too at this point you don't even know what government oversight means okay like we don't <laughs> it's true it's not it's not what you think people so <laughs> no <laughs> well i mean all i mean the the trump administration and all the deregulation that they're trying to like push forward and like privatization and like all of that stuff yeah it's all um, about the bottom dollar so that's what i'm saying yeah. government regulation doesn't really even mean you know they, i feel like this is a little bit of a band-aid if you will totally we're just going to turn into a public entity that's going to you know continue to affect the public Whatever. yeah yeah and i mean yeah like i guess like they can't just like get rid of the drug because there are some people that like need it yeah. but like and it's like the over prescription of it that is the issue and the abuse of it. But um, there's a very fine line that this country is like not, you know, cause, cause money, cause money gets involved. People make money off of prescribing the drugs and people make money off of selling them and they get addicted really easily. Um, yeah. And yeah, that was another, and also the government angle too. That was another angle of the story um, that was pretty interesting. Cause apparently both like Trump, you know, this was something it's, it's been an interesting, like sort of bipartisan issue, the opioid crisis. Like it's been an issue that Trump ran on as well. And a huge part of his base, um, are dealing with that, you know, like rural communities, um, are having huge issues with opioid crises. Um, and, but Purdue Pharma, so Trump really wanted to get something the Trump administration ostensibly really wanted to get something done and like, cle- like cleared up with this during his administration and Purdue Pharma, according to the article, at least also wanted to, you know, wrap this up under the Trump administration because they thought they would get a better deal for themselves, according That's to the article, at least. Of course yeah. Yeah. And it makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, and if you really like those numbers, right, I, I found there was another, um, I think Bloomberg broke it down a little bit more and explained that um the 225 million or something would go like at there's the the immediate definite payments that will be made as part of the deal is like 225 million and then like an additional 250 million to like various federal like the justice department or something from the sacklers and from purdue but then everything else is going to get tossed into like bankruptcy court and like who knows what'll come out of it it's complicated. Like I, I, there's a lot about the, the, what's going on. That's very clear cut. And then there's a bunch of stuff that if I was like, you know, really read up on bankers, like federal, um, corporate bankruptcy law, I'd be like really much more able to, well, you know what? I feel to like, discuss like cogently. A lot of times I feel like that rhetoric is designed to confuse us, you know? Yeah. Like it's, it's set up that True. way, you know? So you can go, as, you can go as deep as you want. You still gonna be caught up in the matrix, but that's, you know, girl, that's you me. know what the big short you know the movie the big short yeah i love that movie and they got they really spent a lot of time talking about like you're not you're supposed to be confused because people start can get away with a lot of shady crap good point Teresa. i feel much better about not fully (laughs) understanding everything listen i don't feel dumb at all well you're not and yeah no (laughs) girl i got you back but i'm saying Uh, thank you yeah ultimately like all those numbers and everything you said uh, of everything you said what i heard was settlement and what I yeah. heard was future production of drugs. Like <laughs> you got to right. pull out the key, the key words and the key phrases. So we'll see if True. this actually leads to um, any changes, but. Um, so true. Yeah. And it's also, you know, it's, um, it, it is going to be curious, like what happens? Cause at this point, like, is this on a train that like, can't 
be stopped, right? Like if if the because it's also people who are already addicted. Like the what happens is is they don't just stay with oxycontin; they start moving towards cheaper and harder drugs like heroin and like fentanyl. So it's like the people who are already addicted, like it's it becomes an issue of like you know are these even if these funds like are just and even if you they get a portion of those funds like are they going to be used effectively to actually help people exactly you know it's not just it's who knows like because addiction is is such an awful cycle and very like hard to break really Um, interesting to see you know to do some follow-up on this and to see if Purdue Pharma has any sort of um you know, addiction services or any sort of like yeah. background. Well, that, okay. This article didn't help people with these issues. Yeah. So, okay. I don't, I don't remember where I read this, but I'm pretty sure like Purdue Pharma not only made money off of OxyContin, but then started trying to reinvest in rehab facilities later on. I feel like, like I truly, yeah, like truly shady, like making money on both ends of this maybe maybe yeah I don't know I remember reading that but it wouldn't surprise me if that was true at all um yeah it's fucked up and I just like up you know and them also like trying like I also definitely remember reading when they were starting to be sued for all of this that there was reports of them like funneling money to areas where it couldn't be like kind of um sued for essentially like into other companies or whatever or yeah I don't know if it was offshore accounts or not I don't really I you know I, I guess I shouldn't be saying stuff I don't really <laughs> remember but again like it wouldn't surprise me like once you there's been like I remember reading about more things I can't remember the specific sources from but I remember reading at some point that like at a certain level of wealth like the way you view morality and how like the world works like totally changes exactly um, we can screw it up yeah. and we can fix it at the same time yeah and just get rich yeah anyway anyway that's the story (laughs) we did it we did we did it all right well thank you so much emily for that story that was great yeah uh we're gonna go ahead and jump into our second musical break before we jump into the world news and a little bit of good news um this is a classic by fela kuti this song is called this is water no gift enemy we'll be right back
Objection to the rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. So we're going to jump right into our world news story. Um, information for this story was gathered from CNN and NPR. So officials in France have detained 11 people in connection to a brutal beheading of a teacher who allegedly showed characters of the Prophet Muhammad. The teacher, Samuel Petty, showed his students the cartoons as a part of a civics lesson on freedom of expression related to the ongoing trial over the 2015 attack on the Paris offices of the satirical magazine, Charlie Hedbo. Before showing the characters, the teacher had reportedly asked Muslim students to raise their hand, allowing them to leave the room if they wish. On October 7, a parent posted a video on Facebook calling for action against the teacher. According to France's national anti-terrorist prosecutor, Jean-Francois Richard, the man publicly identified Patty and demanded that the school dismiss him. A day later, that same man filed a complaint about the about the class to Patty, and he, in return, filed a complaint of defamation. On October 12th, a parent published a second video on YouTube targeting the teacher. So the man who killed Patty was an 18-year-old refugee of Chechen origin, identified as Abdullah Abuyedovich. It is reported that he approached students outside of the school and asked them to point the teacher out. And when the teacher left around 5 p.m., he followed him. He attacked the man on the way home from work. And according to police reports, he cut his throat and decapitated him and then posted a graphic claim of the responsibilities on social media. Police in France raided numerous homes on Monday in a suite to, to find the suspects who allegedly offered online support for the beheading of the teacher. The French president, Emmanuel Macron, characterized the attacks as Islamic terrorism and held a defense council meeting on Sunday uh, where his office said that the government will reinforce security at schools when classes resume on November 2nd after two weeks of a holiday. Thousands of people gathered in France in the streets and in cities across France to support the freedom of speech that is a part of their culture. Reuters reported that a national tribute to Patty will be held on Wednesday. So just a little background on Charlie Hedbo. It's a French satirical weekly magazine that features cartoons, reports, and jokes. Um, it's been described as anti-racist, um, skeptic, and secular. 
and it has traditions of left-wing radicalism. It's known for publishing articles about the far right, religion, politics, and culture. The magazine has been a target of three terrorist attacks, one in 2011, 2015, and 2020, and all of them were presumed to be in response to a number of cartoons that controversially depicted Muhammad. Um, the magazine has been the target of three terrorist attacks in 2011, 2015, and 2020. All of them were presumed to be in response to a number of cartoons that depicted Muhammad. Depictions of Muhammad are seen as blasphemous to many Muslims. So 12 people were killed, including the publishing director Sharp and several other prominent cartoonists. Political and religious leaders in France have expressed outrage over the killings and called for solidarity. French education minister Jean Michel Blanquer stressed the need for unity within the education community and more generally urging French people to show pride in their values of liberty, equality, and fraternity. Secularism is deeply ingrained in French culture, which, with many believing that nothing, not even one's religion, should come before national identity. Yet for those who have strong faith, this tenet is a complex one to hold. The Secretary General of 57 Nation Organizations of Islamic Cooperation condemned the attack, reiterating that it rejects all forms of extremism, radicalism, and terrorism for any reason or motive. Um, in general, it's been known that in the French classroom, they discuss these many ideals because they want their students to be ready to face the challenges that face the French society. So yeah, what are your thoughts, Emily, on the beheading of a teacher for speaking and showcasing some, um, I guess, historical documentation, right? If this is a magazine that's printing in full time, um, in yeah. real time, to their students to teach them about a certain topic. Yeah, I mean, um, it's horrifying. Uh, you know, I, I've never been someone who was like deeply faithful I guess if that's the right word in a religious sense like I am Jewish and I had a bat mitzvah and all that stuff but it, it's much more cultural for me than um like religious in that sense um so yeah. you know that kind of comes from what I'm whatever I say next comes from that perspective um but I think that it's it's really scary when religion is used as an excuse to harm another person like no matter what um for me um yeah. I think religion used for helping others and finding peace within yourself is like, go for it. It's totally awesome finding community. But um, yeah, when it comes like the Charlie Hebdo um, attacks and then this, which is seems to be very much connected to that. Um, yeah. It's really scary. It's really horrifying. Yeah. I mean, it really just made me think about how we have such a freedom in this country to speak yeah. our minds. And even with, you know, um, and God, we trust being on our dollar and supposedly America being a secular society that allows for all different types of religion. I think in some ways, certain religions are pressed more than others in our society, uh, definitely in the way that our laws are carried out, our government, you know, uh, presumes to act, but yeah. presumes, right? Because it's not, right. it's all an act, but none to, right. <laughs> but to say the least, you know, I'm an educator, so I have definitely... Uh, felt the need and benefited from uh, challenging material in classrooms that make me think outside of the box that allow me to think about these things from extreme measures so that I can make up my own idea 
about my identity, about how, you know, these concepts are represented in society and also seek more knowledge so that I can be proactive in inclusion and more understanding to everyday person. So the thought that, you know, um, I'm always nervous, especially in an online environment, that someone that I will be presumed the wrong way if I talk about something a certain way. Um, but I never really think about the materials that I'm using being so offensive that, you know, it would cause my death. Um, it's just it's just a very interesting concept because education is supposed to be the place where we can talk about these challenging ideals and learn um, about these things without judgment. And then we make our own judgments based on our understanding. So. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, that's a really good point from the education angle. I think, you know, cause I think unfortunately what happens with a lot of, um, Oh, how do I phrase this? I think not a lot of, but there, there are some aspects of some religions that try to, what's the word? Like, don't really, the aim isn't for independent thought. It's for, like dedication to what you're being told and kind of sticking with that. And that does kind of, and that, you know, the idea of educate, like um, promoting independent thought is a huge, you know, a great part of education. And I think it was a super important part for like, for me and just like learning how to be a, a smart like person in the world, just like kind of questioning the things around you. And unfortunately I think that goes, that clashes with, um, some more extreme religious, you know, yeah, things in the world. And that's across religions too. Like that's, you know, not exactly to call any one religion out, like extreme religions, I think across the board ask their, or demand that the people within those sects, like don't question things. Yeah. So they, they want you to be indoctrinated. Like that's the, that's the tradition. Um, Well, I am a woman of faith and I can honestly Mm -hmm. say that within the faith community that I'm a part of, the Emmanuel Baptist mm-hmm. Church, woo woo, Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they definitely teach us to be open minded to all religions. They acknowledge um, other times during the year when there is religious activity and different um, holidays and what they mean because mm-hmm. it gives us an opportunity to observe faith in a broader spectrum. You know, I think that mm-hmm. the way that religion can be most effective now is to teach us to respect each one's and try to find some commonality in people's dedication to faith. At the end of the day, yeah. it doesn't have to be how they differ. It's more about that you understand faith and you have a dedication to it. And I respect your mm-hmm. dedication just as much as you respect mine, you know? Beautiful. Yeah, that's great. And I think um, one of the best religious experience I, experiences I ever had was... Um, the the rabbi at my university where I went to college I was like you know ask just asking him some questions because we were in a situation where that was it was just like open and I was always very skeptical of um a lots of aspects of Judaism including there's like a in more like uh religious communities there there's what seems to be to to me to be a lot of misogyny like men and women can't sit together and that always you know yeah. didn't sit right with me and um but it was a great conversation and you know and he's what was he was like more than reformed like he was even like he was um forget what it's called but it's like sort of like a radical more radical branch of Judaism that really and essentially like at its best like Judaism like asks you to question everything you know like it really is like don't you know what does this mean to you and like why does this exist and just to always sort of be asking questions to kind of learn more about yourself and the people around you and the world around you yeah um so I always really appreciated that 
Yeah, very interesting yeah. story. So I stand in solidarity yeah. with the people in France. Yes. Um, definitely my heart goes out to those students who were yeah. students who now have to have this as a part of their educational memory. Oh, oh my God. Um, definitely want to consider For- those kids who now have this story to tell about their experience. Oh my God. Those kids, his colleagues, yeah. and his family too. Yeah. Every, everyone. It's yeah. Awful. It is. So, you and know, the teacher just expressing my solidarity for, with France. And I'm glad that the country is coming together to uh, mourn this loss and, and talk about um, how we all need to just really practice uh, equality and inclusivity. Yeah. Yeah. All righty. And so finally, Emily, you got some good news for us. I do have some good news to kind of, you know, ease us into the rest of the Sunday. Um, All right. So this story comes from an October 20th article by Lisa Held on civileats.com titled Nutrition Education is Helping Low-Income Families Eat Healthier. And it's subtitled, uh, a new study shows that SNAP-Ed is working and may help people in low-income communities eat more foods that prevent diet-related diseases and reduce the devastating impact of COVID-19. So SNAP is, uh, stands for Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which is a federal program that the USDA.gov website describes as providing, quote, nutrition benefits to supplement the food budget of needy families so they can purchase healthy food and move towards self-sufficiency. And then SNAP-Ed is, quote, a companion program that provides comprehensive nutrition education to many of the same families and who may be struggling to put together healthy meals on a limited budget. And that was that last quote was from the Civil Eats article. Um, So a new study published in the Journal of Nutritional Science in September, quote, found adults and children in SNAP-Ed programs are more likely to make a number of positive behavior changes, including eating more fruits and vegetables. Uh, The data from the study comes from 2017 and comes from eight southern states via the Public Health Institute. Um, It's the first time that the impact of programs like this one have been evaluated in this way. So a little more background on the program. Quote, the entire SNAP program is funded by the Farm Bill. About 95% of the money goes directly to SNAP benefits. And the small remaining slice includes funding for SNAP-Ed. While states began to operate the education program as far back as 1998, it transformed during the Obama administration to focus on evidence-based projects and emphasize communities and public health approaches to nutrition education. Also, quote, the program aims to educate SNAP recipients, but there is a lot of flexibility in terms of what each program looks like. They include direct education programs such as lessons and cooking classes and social marketing campaigns to disseminate messages about healthy eating, as well as uh, policy systems and environmental, aka PSE, changes. Um, so examples of PSE changes are banning sugary beverages in schools and putting healthier options in vending machines. So uh, last week, my good news story was about the World Food Program. So I wanted to make sure that our listeners, yeah, which was very cool. And I also wanted to make sure that our listeners knew that hunger is also a huge issue right here in the United States. I think I mentioned it, but um, yeah, it's just another, you know, a good reminder that even if you don't think your own individual community has an issue, it it probably does. Um, And if you're, you know, want to learn more on how to help out, seek out your local food bank, um, even if you don't realize that there's an issue. Um, and also just another note that, you know, a healthy population needs access to the right kind of food, not just a lot of it. So 
really awesome that this sort of programming um, is actually having a good impact because, you know, sometimes you hear about all these nonprofits and you're wondering, like, are they actually doing anything? Um, and this one it is, or, you know, because this right. is a nonprofit, it's a governmental program, but still. Yay. Yay. That's awesome. I'm glad to hear yeah. that that program is actually making strides, you know? Yeah. You hear about same. these programs sometimes and you never hear the results, but this is definitely positive. Yep. And um, I think we all have been familiar with SNAP in one form or another. So yep. keep up yep, the yep. great work. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. So that's it. We, we did it. We did it. Oh, <laughs> we did it. That's it for this week's Objection to the Rule, guys. Thanks so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, on the Radio Free Brooklyn app, on Spotify, or anywhere you can find iTunes podcasts. Ooh. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. Our final track of the day is a really fun one. So I hope you get up and dance. This is called Cherry Pie, and it's by Buju Bantan and Pharrell Williams. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. My reader, I saw you from behind. I thought that you were mine. And your zodiac sound was fun. Wind up your waist and the base and down Bubble up your body when the band can come You know when you set off some clothes up you take off Turn up and face it, down by the road Girls in our friends in nothing Them plenty step out and step off In a phone to a Bentley Girl, you know me Love can't empty one The house sent me Step out of me house Just straight and can't fuck Girl, tell me have you seen that girl Alright, old girls have a very bad habit Lock me down for the with and grab it Old thing me no left out me tonic Excursion, excursion Girl, wind your body. Move your body, 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 girl, wind your body.